Good morning. Welcome to Fellowship Church. Every Sunday, we gather here in person and also online to reorient ourselves to the story of God, to be reminded of the truth of who God is and who we are as God's people. This morning, as we begin our time of worship together, I invite you to take a moment to remember your baptism. If baptism isn't part of your story, then consider the truth of what baptism means. Part of what it means is that we belong to Christ and we belong to a community. In the scriptures, the Apostle Paul says to the church in Rome that in our baptism, a grace that is given and not earned, we are joined with Christ, joined with him in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection to new life. And also, the writer of Hebrews reminds us that Jesus Christ, the one to whom we are joined, he is seated at the right hand of God, advocating on our behalf. And so we can come to God this morning and every day, confidently, knowing we will find mercy when we are in need. Friends, the holy God and king of the universe welcomes us just as we are, because we belong to him and we belong to each other. Though we may not understand it fully yet, that's okay. Let's offer ourselves this morning in praise to our holy three-in-one God. Would you stand and let's sing together, holy, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord. 
be seated. As I put on my striped shirt this morning, I couldn't help but notice the boldness of the green coupled with uh, the white stripes right next, to one, right next to them. I was reminded of the boldness of our sin and yet the purity of God's grace that lines each of our hearts as well. Maybe one of the best biblical characters that exemplified this was King David, a man of greatness and a man of great sin a man after God's own heart, and at times, a man after his own wealth and honor. Amidst a time when he was keenly aware of this double lining in his heart, he offered a prayer that we know as Psalm 130. We will use some of its words as a part of our prayer this morning. Let's pray together. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. Oh God, we know that you are the only one who can fulfill us amidst the challenges we face in this life. May this be our first petition as well. To you, O Lord, to you we ask that you would hear our silent prayers for the obstacles that we face in our life that cause us to look to others instead of you. If you, Lord, kept a record of sin, who could stand? Oh God, you are the only one who knows the depth of our pain, the totality of our hurt, and the brokenness inside each and every one of us. And yet, you invite us, as we are, into your presence, into your love, into your abundant life, because with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. We ask, O God, that our lives would reflect the grace and forgiveness that you offer to each one of us. May we, not just as individuals, but as a whole community, be ones who make known your love and grace in this world so that all might come to know you, so that all, including us, might be freed from the double-striped lives, our double-striped lives, and evermore live into your love. For you alone are the redeemer of this world, We wait for your full redemption that will come in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing uh, to, to the one who forgives us and shows us great, great grace.
Lord be with you, Fellowship Church. Whether you are joining us in person or online, what a joy it is and a gift to be uh, in this together. My name is Nate Skipper, and I'm one of the pastors here at Fellowship, where our mission is to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. If you are new or if you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. We're glad you're here. And if you'd like to learn more about the ways in which God is at work in our community, we encourage you to pursue one of us, uh, especially uh, the pastors, but I'd probably say anybody would say yes, right? I mean, uh, any of the fellowship folks. So uh, great to have you with us. Uh, I need some help again, Ross. Oh, I know. I was going to tell you about something that I get to do uh, almost every day, is, and that's to come to this building. Not everybody comes to the building every day, but you, uh, some of you might drive down Lakewood Boulevard on occasion, and did anybody notice the happenings on Lakewood Boulevard recently? They chopped down those enormous pine trees down there by the swamp just past 152nd, and then they're, they're putting in these enormous construction things for preparing to build the road. For some reason, they didn't ask us if it was all right that they built the lake or, or redoing Lakewood Boulevard, but uh, it, it appears as if they're preparing to redo Lakewood Boulevard in some way, and they're making preparations by cutting the trees down and bringing in the equipment. Similarly, uh, you see this, this is the transition to uh, what we are going to do soon in preparing for Easter uh, in the season that we call Lent. Uh, and we are preparing the, the way, getting the equipment ready, so to speak, that begins on Ash Wednesday, which is next Wednesday, not this coming Wednesday, but the following one, March 2nd, number two. I need crowd participation, guys. I warned you because I need another announcement. Does anybody else have any more announcements? One. Oh, I got one in the back. Yes, you. Uh, aren't you the tech guy? Nate, my name is Bryce Vanderstelt. We've worked together for like five years. Oh, yeah, Bryce, Bryce. God, yeah, Bryce. We have different offices. We don't Bryce hang out Bryce is ton. the minister of How's youth that? and young adults at Fellowship Church, and he has an awesome announcement for us this morning. Built up that announcement. This is an awesome announcement because for the last two years, uh, we haven't been able to go with our high school group on our big summer surf trip. So normally we take a high school group out for a week, we go around the country, and we help people, and it's a great experience. This summer, we get to go back on the road. So we're heading to West Virginia in June, and part of that experience is that we try to make it as affordable for every student to go along with us. So you're asking Pastor Ross to drive the bus. <laughs> as much as I'd love Ross to be there on the trip, I would. That's <laughs> He is a good driver. Yeah. <laughs> what I need is more help than just that, though. I need help from everyone, because as we come together to raise money, I said in the last service, asking for money and not, and not having fun don't have to go hand in hand. So we like Absolutely. to ask for money and have fun all at the same time for a good cause. So on March 5, we are hosting our second trivia night. We did our first trivia night a few years ago, and we're excited to bring it back. I get the fun part money. of a trivia night, but I don't get the money part. How are you going to raise yep. money by having fun doing trivia? So you set up a team, so you can sign up with four to six people on your trivia team. Uh, the cost is $150 for that team. Or if you're an individual, maybe you're a rogue loner who just likes to do things on their own, you can sign up on your own for $30, and we'll put you on a team where you can get to know some other people. You just people. said that they wanted to be a loner. What if they want to spend $150 and go Part by of themselves? church is growth, and this uh, is also a growth experience. They go, if they want to give us more money, well, that's a, this is a minimum. You can go as high as you want, because I know the generosity of people at yes, Fellowship. Yes. 
Uh, but you can sign up with your team, and that not only includes to do trivia, but we also have a meal provided. If you have kids, like Nate has younger kids, uh, we also will have childcare provided during that time. So that's night, overnight, right? That's <laughs> overnight minus about give or take six hours. Oh, I say more during the trivia night. We'll have childcare as well. Awesome. So, like I said, we already have uh, students signed up, and this includes students that are part of our congregation and friends of students, so kids that come from outside of our congregation. Our hope, we say it every year, is if money is a reason that you're not signing up, don't let that be a reason. And we can do that because of the generosity of fellowship. Sounds like a great night and for a great cause, yeah. a good combination. Yep. And uh, who are you going to pick to be on your team, Bryce? Well, the trivia ranges from all different categories just because it is a church event doesn't just limit it to Bible trivia, but you might benefit from a pastor being on your team. And if you need a pastor on a trivia night, I would definitely choose Pastor Ross. I thought you said, wait a second. It's for fun, it's also to win. So I would choose Ross to be on my trivia team. And... Yeah. Uh, what's the grand prize for this? Are we wagering anything on this? There uh, are prizes. Price? They're top secret prizes so, as of now. Uh, my team, I'm going to put together a stellar team, and we're going to beat Pastor Ross's team. That's all I'm going to say. I will say, I know Keith Brown, he already has a team signed up, and he's looking for competition. He said they won last time, so the returning champions are coming back. Awesome. And they're looking for another win. Well, we'll look forward to uh, seeing you March 5, Bryce, I'll and return all of to us. my tech booth. Your tech booth, yes. And speaking of which, uh, shameless plug, we always need folks to help out uh, with uh, our videography and soundography. Is that a word? Uh, no. But uh, the tech team does a great job of making sure that this service is uh, heard here, but also uh, experienced. Experienced uh, from folks home. So if you uh, would like to learn more about what it might mean uh, to be on the tech team, you can talk to Jess or our tech director, John Cochran. The kids that are going to Sunday school are invited uh, to head there ages three through eighth grade today, uh, are going to Sunday school at this time. Uh, the rest of us uh, that will, will continue in worship uh, by joining our hearts, please stay seated for that. Yes.
Well, good morning, church. The peace of Christ be with you. Okay, let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are eager to open your word once more and to find it again to be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Today's story is one of the favorites in all of Scripture where we again find the person and work of Jesus to be fascinating and life-transforming. It's the story of a woman caught in adultery and the story of her accusers caught in shame. As we study it now, I pray that your word would be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and the glory of Jesus our only concern. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Let's start with a show of hands. Are there any roller coaster riders in the house today? Come on, yes. I grew up loving these things. They make me sick now, but I used to love them. And my favorite from long ago, which is easily outdone nowadays by ones that are bigger and faster, but my old favorite is a green one called the Raptor at Cedar Point in Sandusky, Ohio. It, like many of the others, climbs up at the very beginning, clickety-clack, up to the top, and then it takes a sharp turn to the left and a steep dive downwards, and then you go through a bunch of humps and loops, and it's an exhilarating two minutes and 16 seconds of a ride out on that roller coaster. I bring it up today, though, because we're studying the Gospel of John. And if you look at the stories of Jesus there, and particularly his popularity throughout the stories, it feels a bit like a roller coaster. And I mapped it for you. The raptor is there on the bottom. But uh, the Gospel of John begins lofty. You clickety-clack up to the top where it names Jesus as the Word made flesh, and he's even called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, way up high. And then with John chapter 2, you begin to go downward. He goes to a wedding in Cana. He is the life of the party at that particular wedding, but he does his things in secret. Nobody really knows much of what's going on. And then down low, we have three stories of Jesus interacting with individuals, with Nicodemus, the woman at the well, and then the man at the pool. The highlight, the fun little stomach uh, thing that you lose your stomach on is the middle one. John chapter 4, the woman at the well, she responds most favorably to Jesus and goes and tells the good news to her whole village. Meanwhile, Nicodemus stays on the fence and the man at the pool doesn't even know Jesus' name. <laughs> it's down low. But then chapter 6 begins the climb up once again, and Jesus is followed and gathered around by a crowd of 5,000. Uh, and that's only the men, include the women and the children, and it might be as many as 10,000 eager to be around and near Jesus. It's an exciting high point. Until you get to the red right there, where at chapter 6, verse 66, a kind of eerie number, which is also one of the saddest verses in the New Testament, it says, from that point on, many of his disciples no longer followed him. And it plummets downward, all the way down to possibly a mere 12. And then in chapters 7 and 8, Jesus is surrounded by controversies. He atta he's attacked and accused by people as close to him as his own brothers, and even crowds and religious leaders, too. Right in between those two chapters, however, is the loop-de-loop -loop of our story today. 
one that serves as almost a perfect, vivid illustration of all the dogmatic disagreements that happen around it. The story, I find, is surprisingly strange and also profoundly edifying. And so I want to bring it to you today, verse by verse, and just repeatedly ask the same simple questions. First, what's strange? And second, why care? Why should we care about it today? So I invite you to find a Bible, perhaps a pew Bible or the one you brought with you, and open up to John chapter 7, verse 53, where we will start reading together. But oh, that's strange. Does your Bible have what mine has? Double brackets and italics and a note alongside this text that says that it's not included in the earliest of manuscripts? How strange that is. This actually only happens twice in the New Testament. This text and right at the end of the Gospel of Mark. The good news with this is that it's a clear reminder that the Bible as we have it today is wonderfully supported by a whole host of manuscripts, as many as 25,000 of them. They've been poked and prodded and tested and put together to give us the book that we now have. And so we can have a bit of confidence that this particular story is reliable. The next closest story of antiquity is Homer's Iliad, and it has a mere 500 copies. So this is way more fully supported so we can take confidence as we open this particular story. The bad news is, of course, that these brackets and italics give the suggestion that we can sometimes pick and choose the texts that we read. In fact, what's up top there is the Bible of Thomas Jefferson, uh, United States' third president. He went to his Bible with a razor blade and cut out the passages he didn't like, kept the ones he did. <laughs> Not a great practice. It seems to be that's what happened actually with this very text, and that's why it's presented the way that it is here. Sometime long ago, a well-intending but misguided scribe very likely took this text out in hopes of avoiding having the scriptures treat adultery lightly. So he removed it, and others did too. That's Augustine's view, and it's been supported by many afterwards. But most biblical scholars, from Augustine to Calvin and to the modern ones today, look at this story and say it is an authentic story of Jesus. Whether it happened right here or elsewhere, it is very Jesus-like, and we can trust it indeed. Who cares? Why do we care about this little bit at first? Well, I think it's a great reminder for us of the great temptation to bend Scripture to our preferences. But we don't need to do that. This is an authentic story of Jesus, and we do not need to save Jesus from himself. It's actually the other way around. He came to save us from ourselves. And this story is one of the great ones that helps to do that. So I invite you to hear the word as it starts in John chapter 7, verse 53, and following into chapter 8, where it says, Then each of them all the controversy ones, then they each went to their own home while Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. What's strange about that? 
This first one's subtle. The rest of them are really not. This one's subtle, but we learn here at the very beginning in the transition verses of the Bible, the habits of Jesus. Now, of course, there's lots of great teaching and wonderful miracles that Jesus does, but in these transition verses, we learn of his habits. First of all, that he retreated to the Mount of Olives, which he did often. It's a place where he fellowships with God. And the next morning, he got up and went again to the temple because that was his custom, and he taught the people there. He used his gifts for the good of the people. He's literally practicing what he preached. Remember, Jesus is the one who said that the most important thing is to love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And he is doing these very things in the transition verses. I think we might care about this today because Jesus is demonstrating a simple and profound truth. We first make our habits, and then our habits make us. It happens with our bodies. It happens with our attitudes. It happens with our community, the people we do life with. It happens even with our faith. We first make our habits, and then our habits make us. And so it was also with Jesus. But this is only the beginning of the story. We've hardly even started yet. It gets really exciting in the next verses where it says this. Interrupting Jesus' teaching, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commands us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? What's strange about that? I think there's at least three things that are strange about that. The first is that it is majorly disruptive. You could imagine it being similar to what's actually going on right here, right now. Jesus is teaching, and if you pictured someone now hustling in, someone accused of sin and demanding a trial spontaneously right here, right now, it would be a bit like that. That's what was happening. That's strange. That's disruptive. Even more so, I think it's strange that they bring only the woman. Where's the dude? Right? Last time I checked, my grandma told me it takes two to tango, right? And the text is rather explicit. They were caught in the act, right? If you catch one person in the act, you catch two persons in the act. So where's the dude, right? Even the very text that they are drawing out saying that the law of Moses says this and that, they are quoting texts, specifically Leviticus 20 verse 10 and Deuteronomy 22 verse 22. In those texts, both the man and the woman are the ones who are to be called out on the carpet, if you will, not only the woman. So where's the dude? It's strange. Third thing that's strange to me is how did they get caught? I mean, really? Most adultery is pretty secretive, isn't it? Right? Even tangoing. We tango in private. Illegitimate tangoing is especially private, usually. This is not like they were caught passing love notes in Torah class. It's not like they were caught stealing kisses on a sunset camel cruise. They were caught in the act. How does that happen? It almost seems scheduled, doesn't it? 
it seems as if there's possibly a sinister system at play here. Is the man actually in the crowd part of the accusing ones now? I wonder. It makes me think even of the headlines that we've had even just this week about a Russian figure skater, a 15-year-old tossed into public scrutiny. No time for a fair trial. Heavy, heavy shame laid upon her, the kind that almost no one can stand up underneath, and she didn't. Is she guilty? Maybe. I don't know. Is she the only guilty one? Probably not. Why do we care today? I think in this whole scene of getting caught, there is a counterintuitive lesson, and that is that sometimes getting caught is a good thing. Sometimes getting caught is a good thing. Some years ago, I gathered with some parents who were having conversations about how to love our kids well, particularly teenagers, we were talking. And the question was, or the conversation was framed around four questions. First of all, how do you disciple your kids? Second, how do you discipline your kids? Third, how do you celebrate your kids? And fourth, how do you pray? For your kids. In that fourth category about praying for kids, one of the parents brought forth a really interesting comment. They said that we pray our kids would get caught. Not that we actually want them to be doing bad things, but if they are caught up in cheating or smoking or speeding or bullying or whatever, you want them to get caught because then it can be addressed in the context of a loving community before it becomes a life-shaping hard to break habit, right? On the scales, on the grand scales of things, sometimes getting away with it is actually worse than getting caught and addressing it in the right place, particularly in the company of Jesus, which is what's happening with this story. And in our story, we're soon to find out that it's not only the woman who is caught today. Notice the next verse tells us something else. It says, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. What's strange about that? What's strange is that they don't care about the woman at all. She's only a prop. She's live bait. They're not really concerned with goodness or righteousness here. They're concerned only with hanging Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. A catch-22, a binary choice where each side has dramatic consequences. If Jesus says, no, don't stone her, he disregards the law of Moses, which was orthodoxy at that time. That wouldn't be a great choice for him as a rabbi. If Jesus, on the other hand, says, yes, stone her, well, then he's no longer a friend of sinners or even one who has said that he has the ability to forgive sins. He's stuck. It's a little bit like the old movie Home Alone, where Kevin gets left behind at Christmas time, right? And then the robbers are trying to break in the house, and if they go to the back, they find an iced-over staircase where they biff it on the way down. Or they go to the front door, and it's a roasting hot doorknob where they they toast their hand on it. Just like that, Jesus is stuck on either front or back of this particular dilemma. Well, why do we care today? Well, 
I think we care today because it's particularly embarrassing to realize that it's the religious leaders, the church goers, and the senior pastors who paint up this particular trap for Jesus. Their faith, which probably, probably began as genuine, has now become a means to some other end. And we do this too, don't we? First, our faith leads us to care about a certain issue, personal morality, social justice, theological correctness, whatever it might be. But soon, if we're not careful, our issue becomes our idol. We forsake our first love. And the new thing becomes our new God with our faith bowing down in service to it. C.S. Lewis makes this point really powerfully, actually, in a book called The Screwtape Letters, a book that is like a devil's handbook of how to derail Christians. In this example, he uses the issue of patriotism, but you could insert any other hot topic of our days, ancient or modern. So Screwtape, the senior devil, offers this advice to Wormwood, a junior devil, about his target, a Christian. He says, let him begin by treating patriotism or pacifism as part of his religion. Then let him, under the influence of a partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part. Then, quietly and gradually, nurse him onto the stage at which religion becomes merely a part of the cause, in which Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can make in favor of the war effort, or of pacifism. Once you have made the world an end and faith a means, you have almost won your man. It makes very little difference what worldly end he is pursuing, provided that pamphlets, policies, movements, meetings, causes, and crusades all matter to him more than prayers and sacraments and charity. Then he is ours. So, so why do we care that it's the religious leaders who are trying to set a trap for Jesus here? Because they are us. And it's really tempting to let our issues become our idols and for our faith that was once genuine to become only a means to some other end. Friends, if you are unwilling to rethink your favorite issue in the presence of Jesus, beware your issue just might be your God. And so here stands Jesus, again and again and again, hung on the horns of someone else's issue and agenda. What will he do? Well, he surprises us, is what he does. It says in the text, the next verse, but Jesus bent down and began to write on the ground with his finger. What's strange about that? Yeah, everything is strange about that, okay, in case you missed it. That's not normal. You have the Savior of the world doodling in the dirt. We have Jesus the Christ now becoming a sand scribbler. Dad joke, you ready? What language do you think he wrote in? Sanskrit, I heard it. Come on, yeah. <laughs> There's nearly endless speculation about what Jesus might have wrote in the dirt at this particular moment. We don't know. It's all speculation. Some say he's simply buying himself time to think in this moment. Others say that he's referencing other Old Testament passages, which are fascinating and insightful if he was doing so. 
Still others say that he was possibly writing down the names and the sins of the accusers who are standing there right now. It's exciting if that's what it is, Jerry Springer style kind of stuff, right? I think at least three things can be said with relative certainty about what Jesus, the sand scribbler, is doing here. First is that Jesus is a de-escalating presence. What's going on here is it is escalating, escalating with anxiety and hostility. Shouts are rising, questions are being asked. The normal thing would be to keep escalating with it, but Jesus does the opposite. He drops down and draws in the dirt. It is a de-escalating moment. It allows everyone to take a deep breath. Second, Jesus is a diverting presence a diverting presence. Remember, this woman has been hauled in and all eyes are on her until Jesus does this ridiculous thing. And now all eyes are on him, which is an act of grace to her. And then finally, Jesus is a reframing presence. I don't think he just doodled. The text says that he wrote, and I wonder if he wrote one of two things. If he wrote a message to the crowd, I wonder if he simply asked, Where's the man? Where's the man? If we're going to be legalistic about it, he might be saying, then let's be legalistic all the way to the end. So where's the man? Otherwise, I wonder if he wrote a message to the woman who actually probably was closest to him at that particular moment, and I wonder if he wrote something to her that was like, hang in there. Stay by me. I got you. If Jesus wrote something to the crowd, like, where's the man, then he's addressing the whole system. If he wrote something specifically to the woman, then he's the first person in the whole story to treat her like a human. Still, whatever he wrote, it didn't silence the crowd. Not yet. The story continues with their questions still coming. It says, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. What's strange about that? Jesus once again finds a third way. He doesn't pick one of the binary options. He figures out a way not to disregard Moses' law, but also not to make the woman disposable. The new requirement he simply offers is that you must judge yourself before you judge others. And possibly that you must be sinless if you want to be a stone thrower. Or at the very least, you have to be innocent of the crime that you stand witness against, which this crowd might not be. Why do we care at this point? Because this is a a great reminder that Jesus is not only concerned with the taboo sins of our culture, but he's also concerned with the much deeper issues of our hearts. And the story continues. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. What's strange? Well, he's doodling again. (laughs) He's doing that thing again, right? Again, there's much speculation of what exactly he's doing in this moment. We don't know. At least two things are sure. Jesus is stooped down and drawing or writing again, and the crowd 
leaves in the order of the oldest to the youngest. Why did they leave? The key phrase just might be up there where it says, at this. At what? Did they leave because of what Jesus just said? Did they leave because of what Jesus now writes in the dirt? Or did they leave because Jesus graciously diverts attention again? Can I tell you how I've grown in my view of this story over the years? Ross, 10 years ago, took great pleasure in believing that at this moment, Jesus bends down and writes the name of the man in the dirt. Stick it to the man style, right? He's busted, and publicly. Jesus shames the shamers, and now we're going to dance a jig on the graves of our enemies, right? But listen, if you love to hate the Pharisees, Notice that you're looking square in the mirror. It's judgy to be so judgy about the judgers, isn't it? And I wonder, would Jesus do that? Is Jesus the retaliation type? Or is he not the one who commanded us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us? Is he not the one who said even of his executioners as they were killing him, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Today, I'm inclined to see Jesus' second act of doodling in the dirt as just as gracious as his first one. The first instance, Jesus redirected the shaming scowls of the accusers off the woman and onto himself. Now, this second time, Jesus draws attention away from the now-exposed shame of the accusers. The woman was caught in adultery, The accusers are caught in hypocrisy. And for both, Jesus is de-escalating. Jesus is distracting, and Jesus is reframing of the whole situation. And here's what makes me sad in the story. Everybody leaves. Why? Why did everybody leave? Whatever happened to a community that stays? Remember, Jesus said that whoever is without sin can cast the first stone. He didn't say that if you can't throw stones, you have to leave. So why did they leave? It seems as if they leave because they didn't get their way. The Pharisees' trap didn't work, and so they leave. And the crowd feel that the entertainment is over, and so they leave. Why didn't they stay? Only Jesus stays, a powerful moment. They were left with only Jesus. And at that point, he turns to the woman and offers kind words and points to a new kind of life. What if the Christian church were a bit more like the Christ we claim to follow? A community that stays even when it gets ugly and without throwing stones. Well, this is how the story ends. Then Jesus straightened up and asked the woman, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. What's strange about that? Well, first, Jesus, the only sinless one who could throw stones, doesn't. He just doesn't. 
Second, the crowd is just gone. Did they learn anything, or did they just leave angry? We don't know. They're just gone. And then also the woman. We don't know what happens to her after this. Does she believe in Jesus? Does she become a follower of him? I like to believe that you can't have this kind of encounter with Jesus and just go back to life as normal. I wonder if she goes from here and becomes one of those women described in Luke chapter 8, the ones who fund Jesus' ministry. <laughs> I wonder if she's one of the ones in Luke chapter 24, the ones who stay, who stay with Jesus all the way to the bitter end. I wonder. We don't know. But importantly, this story ends precisely where the gospel started, with Jesus full of grace and full of truth. Jesus does not condemn the woman. That's grace. Jesus also does not condone sin. That's truth. He rejects sin in the accused and in the accusers. He rejects sin wherever it is. That's truth. And yet, he does not reject the sinner. Whoever they are, that's grace. And it leaves us wondering, who is this man? Who is this sand scribbler. He's the only one that is in a position to condemn, and yet he doesn't. He seems to be one who came to build a community that stays rather than throwing stones. And he is clearly one in this story who embodies a love that will not let us go, no matter what. Lord, please, let this love of Jesus get hold of us too and let it change us into a community that is just like him, one that loves fiercely and stays. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Would you stand and let's join our O oh, love that will not let me go.
As you go from this place to follow Jesus, the one whose love will not let us go, may the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you always. Amen. Go in peace.